Hey, take your Bible uh, this morning and go back to Jonah. It's my final week here in Jonah. There's just something that's, uh, it's been on my heart um, for a little bit, and I'll explain that to you. I think just as we looked a couple weeks ago at Jonah, reflections on Jonah, and we took the big picture of Jonah with God and the gospel, and then this week, just the final week as we say goodbye at least momentarily to this dear friend, there's a scripture that I want us to see afresh and see again. And so I've titled the message this morning, Jonah and the Love of God. Jonah and the Love of God. And I want to just return to it. This is something that has meant a ton to my heart as I've studied Jonah, as I've studied the love of God And I want to share that with you out of the scripture because I believe it might, I trust, help you in the understanding of the love of God. I want you to be blessed. I want you to be encouraged. Uh, I was so encouraged this morning to be in the membership class and just hear people's testimony of what God's doing in their life. And always on the Lord's Day, we want to be a blessing to you and feed you from the Word of God. But look over at Jonah 4.2. Maybe this is a, a way to just capture what I'm trying to say, and we'll look at all the scriptures today in the Word of God. But remember when Jonah prayed there, where it displeased Jonah in one because they were saved and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, and here's why. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so he recites, does he not, at the end of 4.2 there, the characteristics, the attributes of God. And so we looked at Jonah and we exposited through Jonah and saw God's, really his undeserving grace to Nineveh that he gave. They didn't deserve it. And we saw his steadfast love, as it says there in four, two. And so I'm just trying to think through our weeks in that. We went 10 weeks in the exposition where we looked at his pity. We looked at his steadfast love. But equally on my heart, we've just had a wonderful time in men's equippers. What a joy it is to gather every Wednesday morning with these men. And we've been going through the book of Romans. And we got to that section in Romans 9, on the sovereignty of God, that I will, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who runs or the man who wills, but on the God who has mercy. And we were just left that morning, a couple weeks ago, just stunned with the sovereignty of God and His electing mercy. So we have these twin thoughts going on here. One is his amazing love and pity and compassion to the people of Nineveh and then the, the weighty doctrine of God's sovereignty and election in Romans chapter 9. So on the one hand, God gives a gracious and merciful invitation to a pagan people that we know, Jonah. And on the other hand, He sovereignly, Romans 9, all over the scripture, elects 
And my question for you is, how shall we understand those doctrines? I think I have two particular interests this morning. Number one, just God's love for the Ninevites. Um, It has been very transforming for me. When, When I study, of course, you know, I have the privilege to come and give to you that which I've learned, but the real joy is what the Lord's doing in my own heart and in the context of Jonah to see the love of God has just been transforming for me, to know of his heart for Nineveh, to know of God's heart, to know of his steadfast love, his mercy, and his grace. And we highlighted that a couple of weeks ago. And we've seen that love over and over again, even as he declares why he ran. I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So I think, you know, we, we affirm that, okay? I think we, we get that. We, we affirm his love to a, a wicked nation where he gave his grace and gave his love to them. But that's one. Secondly, though, I've been reading a fabulous book uh, by John MacArthur on the love of God, okay? And, and if you haven't read that book, uh, it's, a, it's a great book. And in that book, there's a, he, he tells of a friend who gave him eight articles that circulated on the web. And all of these articles were written and posted in various, compu- in various forms, if you will, by Christians. Okay? And all of them, all eight articles, deny that God loves everyone. And it's really quite amazing, at least in some of the circles where, you know, you do a lot of reading and you get in some of the circles of um, people who are very excited about God's sovereignty, how pervasive this movement has come that at least all of these articles denied that God loves everyone, okay? And here are some of the excerpts taken from these articles, and I'm quoting here. Quote, the popular idea that God loves everyone is simply not found in the Scripture. Another statement. God loves, and those whom he loves, he will save? Then this question, what about the rest? This statement. They are not loved at all. Another article said this, sheer logic alone dictates that God would save those whom he loves. Sheer logic would dictate that, it is said. Another one said, if God loved everyone, everyone would be saved. Not everyone is saved, therefore God does not love everyone. And on these articles went... Quote, another one, Scripture tells us that the wicked are an abomination to God, and God speaks of hating Esau. And then this question, how can anyone who believes Scripture claim that God loves everyone? This is all over the Internet, and as, as well stated here. Another statement is God loves his chosen ones, but his attitude toward the non-elect is pure hatred. Just reading what it says. This is not my, my, my 
interpretation of it. Quote, the concept that God loves all humanity is contrary to Scripture. God clearly does not love everyone. Another one went that this, and it's the last one, and I'll spare you more. But it says, not only does God not love everyone, there are multitudes of people whom he utterly loathes with an infinite hatred. And then it said, both Scripture and consistent logic force us to this conclusion. End of quote. I mean, that's a little bit tough to swallow, isn't it, when you've been walking through Jonah? And beloved, neither Scripture nor sound logic will support such bold assertions. I mean, according to the previous statements, God's love is limited to the elect alone. In fact, it pictures him hating the vast majority of humanity. And that view just doesn't do justice to the Scripture. I mean, the irony in this is that the song is so simple. You know it. Jesus loves me. This I know for the what? The Bible tells me so. I mean, it is so simple that a child can understand the, the concept. However, as Grudem said in his theology, and I think this is fair, he said the love of God is also a complex doctrine that will take us all of our life to understand, end of quote. I think he's right. I think that's why Paul prays in Ephesians for us to grow in the understanding of the love of God, that it would go, you know, to the height and to the depth and that you would know the love of God, which surpasses, he said, knowledge. So utter irony. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And yet I would convince you and say to you that we will be understanding the love of God for all of our life. In fact, I would be as bold to say you will spend eternity understanding the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God, don't you think? I mean, you don't think you're going to get to heaven and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in a perfect body and I've arrived. No, I believe that heaven is the discovery of the beauty and the contours of God's rich love and his attributes, and that for all of our life, we will be caught up in our understanding of knowing God. So I would say to you and to my own heart, we ought to be about that right now, shouldn't we? I mean, I want to love God and I want to know God because I think we're going to be doing that the rest of our life. But the love of God raises questions, does it not? I mean, people have asked these questions. If God is love, why is the world such a theater of tragedy? Or this one. If God is so loving, why does he allow his own to suffer? That's a, you get that question? I, I just heard that in a theological think tank this week. You know, there is a theological think tank in Kingsburg. It's my barbershop where I get my hair cut. And I met a guy in there. And I think the, my barber introduced me as Pastor Scott. And we were talking about somebody who suffered physically. And as close as I can remember what the man said to me just a few days ago, he said something like this, I, I think... The big man 
might have saw that one a little bit wrong. Meaning that what he was saying to me about a person is that God must have missed that one regarding this person's suffering. And we get those questions. I mean, why would a loving God allow wars and famines and disasters and to cause so much human anguish? I mean, if God is so loving, why did he allow sin in the first place? Why did he even allow death? And if God is love, why isn't everyone saved? Why are only the elect chosen by God to eternal life? And why would a loving God devise a plan that has so many people going to hell to suffer for all eternity? How are we to understand that kind of love? You see, the song is simple, but it's complex. When you look at this subject, just as we've got through Jonah, you can add to that, what I just said, the many unbiblical approaches regarding the afterlife. And these approaches are often developed because, frankly, very simply, of a skewed perspective on the nature of God's love. One of those skewed perspectives is the doctrine of universalism. That doctrine teaches, you've probably met people, that in the end, all will be saved. God's love, in the end, the thought is, wins. Rob Bell wrote a book that way. He believes in universalism. was a pastor in Michigan, and now he is Oprah Winfrey's spiritual advisor. Left this church... And this is what he, teach, he teaches. In the end, all will be saved. God's love, that doctrine, that character wins in the end. Hell and punishment will eventually be swallowed up by the love of God. It is a very popular thought today. In fact, his newest one that he just came out with is that any church that does not recognize, you know, uh, a gay marriage is not relevant, is what he's just recently said last week. But you have this doctrine of universalism. Secondly, quite a popular doctrine, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, is the doctrine of annihilationism. Okay, Annihilationism. Some people call that conditional immortality. Um, but it's at death. Unbelievers are, have you heard this? Just annihilated. In other words, they just go back into the dust of the ground and there is no suffering in the afterlife or even a place called hell. And so both those views contradict, beloved, you know that, the clear teaching of Scripture. But my question for you, just briefly, hopefully we can finish, how shall we proceed to understand the love of God? That's my aim this morning. And I'm leaning, I would tell you, on the shoulders of some giants this morning both theologically, whether it be Grudem or even John MacArthur or D.A. Carson has a wonderful, helpful, profound book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. You could read it in two hours. Well worth the read, okay? So let's understand God's love. And I'm thinking of Jonah in the context. So let me say this. It's on your notes. I want to point you to five distinct ways 
that Scripture, right, we're always about the Scripture, reveals the love of God to us. You mean five ways? Yeah, five ways. Very important, okay? Then I will demonstrate why these ways, these distinctive ways, are vital to understand God's love in proportion and balance. And the reason I'm going to do this is if you don't understand it in proportion and balance, you will have a distorted view of God's love. And I don't want you to have that. And as an elder team, we want to teach you this. So let me walk through pretty quick these five distinctive ways, okay? First, God's perfect love. Get your pen out because you want to take some notes here. Is God's perfect love. Now, you're going to see these come out. What, what is that? That's the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. Look over in John chapter 3 for a moment. Would you do that? John chapter 3. This is obviously what we just, you know, we can call it a, the perfect love. Carson called it that. I like that. But you have wonderful statements in the Scripture in this way, within the triune God, within the Trinity. In, in John 3, verse 34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And then this in John three thirty-five, The Father, here's the text, loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That is the perfect love. The scripture tells us, bound up within that relationship of the triune God, that the Father loves the Son. That's a distinct love. It's a perfect love. Look over just a couple chapters in John chapter 5 in verse 20. In John 5 verse 20, there it profoundly says, For the Father, there it is again, loves the Son, and shows him all that he himself is doing. That statement again there, that the Father loves the Son. Look over in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. These are all descriptions of perfect love. You say, well, Scott, is that that love of sacrifice? You know, I mean... You know, we're talking about the love of God, but he loves the Son. It's a perfect love. Beloved, you know that. There's no sin within the Trinity. It's completely and absolutely and totally holy. And in that love, because there's no sin, there's no forgiveness. It is a perfect love that the Father has for his Son. Just a few weeks back, we believe we were standing in the upper room where this discourse was given in Israel. But look at John chapter 17. In verse 24, Jesus is praying in that high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so here are these statements, those three in particular, that the Father has a perfect love for the Son, but also, reciprocally, the Son has a perfect love for the Father. Look back at John chapter 14. They're all right here in John chapter 14. I'm just touching on a few of these. It says, when he had gone out, 
and I'm in John 14, 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Oh, excuse me. I was in 13. John 14, 41. He says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the what? Father. He loves the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And so the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. It is a perfect love. We do not share that. But, beloved, enough for me to say biblically, foundationally, love is bound up in the very nature of the Godhead. Love comes from God. It originates from God, and it is a perfect love that's never been tainted with sin. That's the perfect love. Secondly, would you note this? There is also in Scripture God's providential love. God's providential love. So what do you mean is providential love? Well, it's his love for uh, creation. Uh, the word love is not specifically mentioned in this instance, but is implied. Scriptures are replete with the concept that all that God made, remember back in Genesis 1, is good. This includes all the grass of the fields, the flowers, the mountains, the wildlife, all whom God feeds and sustains. After he made it all, he said it is very good. We call this the loving providence to the world in which we live. In other words, there's a not just a perfect love, but there's a providential love. I think the scripture that, that really you want to know on this one, and you know it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.45, he... God causes his son to rise on the evil and the what? The good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the what? The unrighteous. Now listen, beloved, that would include Nineveh. That would include everybody. I mean, even yesterday, I was walking with my mom is here with us. And we were just walking in the farms by the house. And this is gorgeous, right? Now, I can give praise back to that, but that creation speaks of God. In fact, we've been talking about that in men's equippers. But listen, he causes the sun to rise, as it says, on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, and that includes Nineveh, includes all all the world. We would also call that, in a theological system, common grace. It's not a special grace, but it's a common grace in that it goes out to all. That is God's providential love over creation. These are just distinct. So you got his perfect love. Secondly, you got his providential love. Thirdly, important, and you're aware of this one, we'll call it this, God's passionate love, okay? God's passionate love for a fallen world, okay? Now, the scripture that immediately comes to mind is John 3, 16. For God so loved the, what? World. You know that. You say, what is that? That's a passionate love for a fallen world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Certainly, Grace Church, you remember in John 1, 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, what? The world. He didn't say who takes away the sins of the elect. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Remember when we were in 1 John 4, 14, there the writer said, we have seen John the Apostle and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You just can't get around him. This is his passionate love. You say, well, what way? It's a passionate love for a fallen world. He so loved the world. He gave his son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 1 John 4, 14, his son is the Savior of the world. And you remember from our study on 1 John, 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation of our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole, what? World. Now, some object to that. How can they, some would say, God loves the world, but he hates the sinner at the same time? Stay tuned. More on that later, okay? So you got his perfect love. You got his providential love. You've got his passionate love. These are all laid out in the word of God. Fourthly, you've got God's particular love. Okay, particular love. You understand what I mean by that. God sets his affection on the elect in a particular, selective, sovereign way. All of the Bible teaches this. It's a particular love. Let me just show you the great one. Look over in, they're all great, but look over in Deuteronomy just for a second. Okay, just to remind you of particular love. Remember here, Moses is writing. Look over in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want you to see this with your eyes. It's so important. You've seen it before, no doubt, but maybe you haven't. That's why we teach the Bible on Sunday. Here, Moses is dealing in chapter 7 with the chosen nation of Israel. But you remember this. He says, does Moses, in chapter 7, verse 6, for you, speaking of Israel, are a people... Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has what? Chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Just stop there for a second. He didn't pick every nation. You know that and I know that. Now they were to be a light to all the nations. But bound up in his sovereignty is his particular love. And his particular love given to this nation. I chose you out of everybody to be. It's in the text. A treasured possession. You say, well, why did he pick them? Thank you. Look at the next verse in 7-7. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. This is in parentheses for really You are kind of the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord, what? Loves you. That's what it says. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. There you have it. He loves you. In other words, they didn't do anything for it. They weren't blessed. They weren't different than the other nations. God sovereignly, selectively, particularly pick that nation. In fact, look over in Deuteronomy chapter 10. There you have another statement. In chapter 10, in verse 14, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God, 
right, belong heaven and the heaven, heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet, verse 15, the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers uh, and chose their offspring after them above all the peoples as you are this day. So we know that the scripture says there's a particular love. Say, well, where else? Well, we don't have time, but I'm thinking of John 15, 16. Jesus said, you could finish the sentence, you did not choose me, but I, what? I chose you. That's particular love. If you're in here, you ought to be stunned that he picked you. I am. You, Jesus said, you didn't pick me. I chose you. And he says, I appointed you that you would go out and bear what? Fruit. Listen, if you're not bearing fruit, then let's get rolling, okay? Let's get rolling. He didn't pick you to be on cruise. He didn't pick you to not have a purpose in life. He gave you the greatest purpose. He chose you and appointed you that you would go out and bear fruit. You say, well, Scott, what's fruit? I think there's attitude fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and then there's action fruit in the use and the exchange of your gifts. But I'm thinking also of Paul in Ephesians 1, 4, that he predestined us particular before the foundation of the what? World. And then it says this in Ephesians 1.5. In fact, would you go there? I just want your eye to see it. It's just one little phrase. It's one little word. But I think little phrases and little words can change lives. Look at Ephesians, just that one moment. He says it in 1.4. He says he chose us. Ephesians 1.4, in him before the foundation of the world. Here's why that we should be holy and blameless before him, period. And then this, it's at the end of four. In love, verse five, he what? He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of what? His will. He, he said, why do you, why do you pick me? I don't have an answer for that. It's not you. It's not me. But in love, he just, he put his love on you. In fact, if you're in Ephesians, just go over to chapter 5. You know this, where here Paul is delineating the doctrine of the church and that familiar phrase in 525, husbands, love your wives, comma, 525, as Christ loved the what? The church. That's particular. He loves the church. You say, but Scott, he loves the world. Yes, but I'm telling you in one of the distinctive ways he loves the church. In fact, I won't turn you there, but Acts 13, 48, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That's what the scripture says. One more, 1 Thessalonians, go over there, turn right a little bit. 1 Thessalonians, great statement. Here, both words are captured, his electing purpose but the manner in which he did it. Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 4, for we know, brothers, you see what it says there? Loved by who? God, that he has chosen what? You. He's chosen you. I mean, I, it's almost even like hard to talk about it. I mean, I think we got done with Romans 9, and one of our elders just said that, you know, there's nothing really to say on Romans 9. You just kind of get there. And you just kind of see it for what it is. And it's just, 
It's just you're, you're kind of left in silence. However, 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 that's for emphasis. If you overemphasize the distinction of God's love, it can become misplaced. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. Okay, hang with me. You got perfect love. You got providential love. You've got passionate love for the world. You've got particular love for the elect and the chosen. And number five, important but distinct, God's provisional love. God's provisional love. That is a love. <laughs> it feels funny saying it, but it's true. It is a love that is conditioned on our obedience. A lot of people don't talk about that because we magnify the grace of God to such an extent that we pulled this one out of the Bible. But this one's in the Bible. Let, let me explain what I mean on this, okay? Because you can go wrong on this one too. This provisional love is conditioned on our obedience. And let me be very clear. This is for his people, you, me. It's not for everyone. There's a provisional love in the scripture that is couched in the language of discipline, okay? So if we said the provisional love, I would say it's conditional, okay? It it is, if you will, for the believer, okay? It's, I mean, I I was trying to think, how can I illustrate this? Because I feel like I'm nebulous. If you play high school basketball and you're at one of the bastion of powers, Kingsburg or Emmanuel, it's a privilege to play. If you don't make the grades, you're not what? You're not playing. So playing any sport, football, basketball, baseball athletes in here, some track athletes, soccer mamas over here on my left, they're here. It's provisional. You've got to make the grade. You understand? Within the concept of God's love, there is a provisional love. And I'm, you think where? Like this one. And I'll explain this. In Jude 21, remember when we looked at that one time when Jude said, keep yourselves in the what? Love of God. And Jude leaves the unmistakable impression that someone might not keep oneself in the love of God. Now, hang with me. You got to think with me. Clearly, this is not God's providential love. Remember the one that's over creation? You can't escape that. It rained last night, whether you wanted to or not. He's not saying when he says, keep yourself in the love of God, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about God's passionate love that he has for all of the world, okay? Nor is he even talking about in Jude 21, a particular love for the elect. No, provisional love is a love that is conditioned upon your obedience to him. Now listen, don't don't misunderstand me. You're not going to lose your eternal security. But to think that the scripture doesn't talk about this, I'm thinking of John 15, 9. In fact, let me turn you there. We won't get it. Turn John 15, 9. You know this passage on abiding in him. On John 15, he's talking about the the vine and the branch and so forth. and, And what a great, great statement. Hey, by the way, I've made a decision. I should tell you this. I'm a little bit off on a tangent here. The next book for us, you're turning to it. I got to do John. I got to do John. There's a lot of things I wanted to do, but I got to do John. And some of you maybe who were here in the early years with Adam and he went through Matthew, 
Praise the Lord for that. But you know that 90% of John is brand new. 90%. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I just feel as a young church, I want to ground us in our Christology. And I want to get to Romans, and I want to get to Ephesians. But for me and for us, we need to just take a look at John's gospel. I'll probably start it, I don't know, either a few weeks or right after Easter, okay? But back to our point. John 15, okay? Remember when he said this? As the Father, and I'm in verse 9, 15, 9. As the Father loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If, condition, you keep my commandments, you will abide in my, what? Love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that your joy may be, you know, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, You've got to abide in his love. And to do that, you've got to keep his commandments. Jesus kept the Father's commandments. You're to keep his commandments because what happens when you don't? You will lose a provisional love. I didn't say you're going to lose your security, but you're going to lose the assurance and guilt's going to gnaw at you, okay? And I'll explain this in just a moment now. I want to be clear. This is not how one becomes a believer, but this is describing our ongoing relationship with God once we have come to know him, okay? In other words, once you come to know him, here this aspect sets in. Let me give you an illustration for the sake so you can see it. If I say to my kids, I used to say this to them, so this isn't like made up. I really say this to them, Glenn. I say this to them. I love you no matter what. What is the word, right? I love you no matter what. I'd often say that to them. There's nothing you can do that will never make me not love you. And then I often would say to them, I love you. And then I would make them finish the sentence. See, I I preach like that. I do that with my kids. It's kind of sad a little bit, you know. And I'd say, I love you. And then they would always respond and say, just because. That love, you guys get that. That is unconditional. That is true. Yet, if one of them disobeys, they will know the fallout quickly. Right? Fair? I still love them, but now there's discipline that's going to be invoked. Doesn't mean I don't love them. Listen, there's provisional love within your home. There is provisional love within the Godhead. You're not going to lose your salvation, but understand that, okay? I'm just thinking of this. Just follow me. I won't turn you there. Psalm 103. He's not dealt with us according to our what? Sins. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. You know it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who what? Who fear him and love him. Not to everyone. So great is his kindness to those who fear him. And just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, okay? But, Psalm 103, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. So listen, you may be a young person in here. Does he love you? Sure. But bound up within the Godhead and the nature of provisional love, you've got to you got to obey him and you got to walk in the fear of him, okay? And his righteousness, Psalm 103, to children's children, to those who keep his covenants and remember his precepts to do them. Listen, I don't care what family you grew up in. 
I say the same thing to my kids. Your ble- the blessing of your parents is not on you. It has to be your own obedience and fear. That's provisional love. So there is a provisional relation. There is a relationship with God of love that is conditioned upon our obedience to him. Now, let me drive these distinctions home to you. This is where I really wanted to get. That was just introduction. That there may be balance, that there may be beauty, okay, in understanding the love of God. Let me say this one slowly. I wrote that in my notes. If you absolutize any of these distinctions, your understanding of God's love will be diminished. If you absolutize any of these five distinctions, your understanding of God's love is going to be either diminished or distorted. For example, if I, I'll just put it in my, or you, I could say, if you oversimplify, that's a good word, God's passionate love for the world, concept three, then we'd all be Arminians this morning. Not Armenians, okay? We'd all be Arminians, okay? We would fail to recognize, if you overemphasize concept three, you'd fail to recognize his particular love for his elect in concept four, okay? And what that does, if you overemphasize concept three, fair, it produces a man-centered gospel that robs God of his glory and exalts man and his choices. It robs, if you will, God of his sovereignty, because it's you choosing, if you overemphasize it, okay? It robs God of his sovereignty, and then here's even worse. It strips you from the eternal security that the Lord promised you. You say, what are you getting at, Scott? Listen, if you overemphasize man's decision to come to Christ, then you'll strip God of his sovereignty and security. Jesus said all, amazing, that the Father has given me, or all the Father has given to the Son will come to him, and the Son will lose how many of them? None of them. He can't lose you. He came down, John 6, to do his Father's will, and this is his Father's will, that he should lose none of those that the Father has given him. Listen, all I know is in the mind and the heart of God, he called you before the foundation of the world, and he will never let go of you. No wonder Jesus declared that no one shall pluck them out of my what? Hand. Yet, yet, listen, if, and I've met a number of people. I was going to, I got to be careful what I say. If you overemphasize God's particular love, you strip God of his passionate love for the world. And this is what is known as, have you heard this? Hyper-Calvinism. It's not Calvinism, it's hyper-Calvinism. An exclusive view of concept four withholds the free offer of the gospel to sinners. And it blunts the love of God for the world. 
it claims, as we read earlier, that God loves the elect, but he hates the reprobates. See, some object to view three, right, passionate love, because they quote Psalm 711. Not 711, the store, but Psalm, I had to do a pause there. Psalm 711, you know what that says, that God is angry with the wicked, how often? Every day. Therefore, they reason that how can God love those who are not his children? MacArthur, in his book, The Love of God, just said it this way. So, well, he said, some Christians who ponder the hard questions about divine love and conclude that God simply does not love people who aren't his own. He hates them, MacArthur says. Under this scheme, I think this is well said, there's no tension between the love of God and his wrath. There's no reason to wonder how God can love people whom he ultimately condemns because you simply conclude that whoever he condemns, he hates. And he said, people who hold this view are quick to remind us that God is angry with the wicked, that he loved Jacob and he hated who? Esau. And they conclude that such hatred and genuine love are mutually exclusive. And I've met people who are like that. I think perhaps A.W. Pink finds the best-known argument for that view in his otherwise excellent book called The Sovereignty of God. I love Pink. Read Sovereignty, and you'll just probably read it like this. I mean, it's just so, I mean, you need to read it. But, but, but Pink uh, did say this. He said, quote, God loves those whom he chooses, and he does not love everybody. He said, it is true that God loves the one who is despising. And he said, is it true that God loves the one who is despising and rejecting his blessed son? Question mark. He said, to tell the Christ rejecter that God loves him is to carterize his conscience as well as afford him a sense of security in his sins. Pink said, the fact is that the love of God is a truth. Do you believe this? For the saints only. And to present it, he said, to the enemies of God is to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. That's a strong statement, is it not? And you're trying to grapple with what I already said. John 3, 16, for God so loved the what? I mean, is it genuine? Some people just go look on the internet. Is it genuine? It's not really a genuine offer. And they're on God's character. You say, well, what would... Pink say to John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I'm glad you asked. Here's what he said. I, I, you know, I just want you to know it's out there. He argued, follow me, that God so loved the world, okay, highlighting the world, world. He argued that the world in John 3.16 refers to the world of believers, It's new, isn't it, for some of you? He said it's God's elect in contradistinction from the world of the ungodly. Have you ever heard that view, the world of believers? D.A. Carson, the wonderful theologian, said of that, according to Pink in John 3.16, he said that really will not do. And I think he's right. All the evidence of the usage of the word is against that suggestion. In fact, Calvin himself the man himself, who I will want to meet in heaven, said this on John 3.16. He said, the Father loves the human race. Okay? And then the next verses is that Christ 
as one writer said, was on a search and rescue mission, not a crusade for judgment. The next verse was, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be what? Saved through him. So God's primary purpose, beloved, in sending Christ, listen, was born out of love, not a design to condemn others. So let me ask you a question. This is just for us. If an unbeliever asked you, does God love the world? How would you respond? I would say, he sure does, doesn't he, Nick? I mean, he says he loves the world. He loves the world. So when people get knotted up and they don't know what to do with that, or they become so particular in their love that they can't see the other proportions of the God of love in the scripture, then they blunt their view of God. Of course, it says God so loved the world. God is Jonah, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast what? Love. That went to the Ninevites, right? I mean, here's the verses I'm always left with. Do you ever meet people? I meet them all the time. Well, Scott, what if I'm not elect? I give him this one. Here's what the scripture would say, Ezekiel 33, 11. You can write it down. Listen to this. It says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the what? Of the wicked. He's not delighting in that, beloved. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. That's God's heart. Uh, turn back, God says. Turn back from your evil ways. That's the heart and characteristic of God. I'm thinking of Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Same one in Jonah 4, 2. Slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. However, however, (laughs) if you overemphasize and overstate, follow me on this, God's provisional love, which some of you do, to keep yourself in the love of God, you can run into a world of trouble. If you separate John 21, or excuse me, Jude 21 and John 15 from other biblical statements about the love of God, such text can drive you to what Carson called the performance treadmill theology because you just every day you wake up you don't know if you're in the love of god you don't know if you've done enough good stuff today to remain in his love so you feel manipulated to get yourself back in the love of god because you might overemphasize that text listen we cannot beloved overemphasize one aspect of god's love at the expense of another We cannot strip God's love of its diverse distinctions in Scripture. And I just say this to my own heart. It ministered to me. Without understanding these distinctions, we are in grave danger of misunderstanding God's love. Listen, God, in his infinite wisdom, beloved, he provided these distinctions so that we would think rightly about him. And so we must see his character in balance. Amen?
let me give you a test. Test time, is it midterm students? I don't know, okay? True or false? Right, because I'm here to provoke you to think, right? We're, this is not an exercise here, right? This is not a club. <laughs> we're a church. That's why we're going to big boy John's theology, okay? We're not a club, okay? We're a church. So let me give you a, a, a question, true or false? <laughs> How would you answer this? This is a little fun, okay? Carson had these in the back of his book. God's love is unconditional. True or false? I would say, Nick, you're right on, baby. I I would say, hear me on this. Is it unconditional? Of course. Especially as it relates to particular love, right? If God chose you, he didn't choose you because you were good. He didn't choose you because you came from a certain family. He, He didn't choose you because you were cool. He chose you because he set his love on you, and that love is unconditional. It's all grace, is it not, from start to what? Finish. But watch this. That's not true in the fifth distinctive. This is where you have to be careful. His provisional love. God may indeed discipline his children. So you say, what does that mean, pastor? To tell a wandering believer... Listen, that he or she is unconditionally loved may be the most damaging thing you can say to his or her spiritual life. Say, why? Because they need to obey God to experience God's love in that relationship with those who already confess Christ, right? So you've got to be careful. You can't just say, hey, you know, you can, you can do whatever you want. You can go wherever you want, do whatever you want. And, you know, God just loves you unconditionally not according to the fifth distinctive. It's for those who fear him and the true believer wants to walk in that. So the statement, I would say, is true and not true at the same time in an exclusive way, do you see? And let me say this, true or false, you know this. God loves everyone in exactly the same way. We would say, well, false. It would be true. Could you say it would be true? In the second category, does he love the world? Yes, he loves the world. He caused the sun to come up. He caused the rain to shine on the evil and the good. He loves everybody, does he not? But it's not true in the fourth, okay? In other words, in the second one, his common grace goes to all, but it's not true in relation to the fourth category of God's electing love. One writer put it this way, and I think this is fair. He says, I love my neighbors. I'm commanded in numerous scriptures to love my neighbors as myself, Matthew 22. He said, I also love my wife. That too is in scripture, Ephesians 5. But clearly my love for my wife is superior in both excellence and degree to my love for my neighbors. I chose my wife. I did not choose my neighbor. I willingly brought my wife into my family to live with me for the rest of our lives. This writer said, there's no reason to conclude that since I do not afford the same privilege to my neighbors, my love for them is not real and a genuine love. He said, likewise, it is with God. He loves the elect in a special way, only reserved for them, but that does not make his love for the rest of humanity any less real. So listen, these are just distinctive ways that God loves. Listen, we must hold these distinctive ways of God's love in balance. We cannot compartmentalize God's love and overemphasize one of God's one view of God's love at the expense of others. 
we need to be balanced and see God's love in all of the scriptures. Amen? So did he love Nineveh? Of course he loved Nineveh. Does he love lost people? Of course he loves lost people. Does he love you with a particular love? What would we say? Absolutely he loves you. You say, but what if I'm on the outside? I'm just, I know you. I can crawl on you some of your mind. What if I'm on the outside? People say this to me all the time. I would give him the words of Jesus. Even after he unpacked sovereignty, he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. You just, you just come. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Just come. Did you hear that last week from Scott Booker? Isaiah 55, come everyone, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat, come and buy milk and buy wine and milk with, with, without money and without price. And then the writer says, let the wicked forsake his way. Forsake it. You just, you just come.